listening to the Super Week Super Weekly Supercast. I'm your host, Evan. And I'm your host, Doc Chris Beck Levo Bag. And I am your host, Monkey Paul Jonathan Davis Tashian. And today we've got a very special guest hailing all the way from Cincinnati. Hi. <laughs> I'll say your name. <laughs> oh, Jane. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Welcome, Jane. And Jane Carver is an accomplished accordion player and vocalist, and she has the rare prestigious position of being the person who introduced Mikey and his wife, Sarah. I did. That's like one of my proudest achievements in my entire life. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me so happy. Yeah. That was one of the greatest days of my life. Well, actually it wasn't because I was like, I don't know about this. (laughs) You know, you know, I don't really want to date, but... Here we are. For the listeners, you <laughs> Mikey, Mikey's wife is in the room with him too. She's she. This is the, the, <laughs> she, she just left. <laughs> she left. Oh, okay. So he's telling tales out of school right now. Yeah, we're getting the inside scoop. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that incident. I don't know. I don't know how what went down. How you introduced Mikey to Sarah? What this can be a short story <laughs> or a really long story. Let's get the long one. I needed to visit a friend in Columbus, Ohio, who was in the hospital. And I was looking at Greyhound tickets and they were really expensive. I was at the warehouse. I remember like being in the garage, like figuring this out. I was like, what if I just like pay somebody what they need to like get me there and back rather than take the bus? Because I've, I've been on a Greyhound bus. I've done two cross country trips. I know the bus well. <laughs> and I just was like not feeling it for this trip. So I asked Mikey and he drove me all the way there. Yeah. And the night before, I was part of this performance called Deep Aerobics with Miguel Gutierrez. And I got qualified as a deep aerobics instructor. Cool. So I was up until like four or five in the morning and then we we left. And um, on that trip, Mike, I mean, we had talked before, but like, I don't think I knew very much about your personal life at all. Yeah. Yeah, right. And so you told me you like weren't necessarily looking for anybody. Mm-hmm. And I was like, tuck that away. But but you were interested in like having dinner with someone, like hanging out. Then like a month later, Sarah and I were working a shift at Fergie's Pub. And she kind of said the same thing, you know, like kind of just wanted to like meet someone and it'd be cool, but not a big deal. So then I texted pictures of Sarah and Sarah <laughs> pictures of Mikey. And both people were like, oh my God, <laughs> like, who is this dreamy person? And then Mikey went on tour and came back like two months and you guys hadn't got to meet up. Yeah, I actually had to cancel our date. Because it was the night before you left. Because it was too close. I even told her at first, I was like, I don't think there's enough time. And then the day of, I, I canceled. Oof, a near miss. Truth be told, she texted me. She's like, hey, what's up? And I was like, oof, I have to cancel. But then you came back from tour, Mikey. Then I came back. And we were standing outside the warehouse and I was like, text her now and tell her you're back. <laughs> Will you tell her us because you were there? We went to Viet Wong, uh, 142. Viet Wong Fun Cafe. Yeah. Oh, that's one of Evan's favorites. 140, not 142. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Come on. We call it 140 because that's Evan's favorite dish to order there is, is labeled number 140. Quick aside, that shit has been off the menu since the pandemic, and I am very yeah. disappointed. I'm hoping that it's back soon. But anyway, continue the story. So yeah, I texted Sarah. I was like, hey, do you remember me? And she's like, yeah. And I was like, would you like to go out? And so I picked the place. And for whatever reason, 
I was meeting a floral person because she said she was going to be late to our date. So I was like, let me squeeze this thing in hmm. and meet the florist. I'm assuming this is like you're buying weed. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> she comes early or on time, which is not what she said she was going to do. And I was just like kind of standing at my van or Evan's van, probably. Absolutely. And I was just like, please don't see me. Like, just please go inside. And then she walks right up to me and I was just like, Hey, she's like, do you want to go inside? And I was like, I'm actually meeting a weed dealer and I'm buying a bunch of weed and I might have a pot tattoo. So if that's not your thing, you could leave if you want. <laughs> and she's just like, <laughs> that's fine. I'll grab a table. <laughs> <laughs> and then you knew you were in love in that moment right there. <laughs> well, you know, my anxiety was through the roof. Well, not really. I mean, I was just kind of like, I, th- I threw it out there. I feel like a lot of people that I've dated have been like, not really with the weed, but it just, everything went great and shit. <laughs> Within a year we were married. Yeah. When you know, you know, I guess. It's true. I believe that thing. Yeah. That's uh really kind of amazing. I always feel like it's like a lot of the couples, you know, when you're like old and you have children or whatever, you're like, oh, did I ever tell you the story about how I met your mother? <laughs> and then, you know, there's that TV show that has 12 seasons that they like take to explain it. But Mikey, I feel like that was a classic. You're like, hey, uh, I'm buying weed right now. <laughs> And you canceled the first date, and it's just like all of these things that are just like, oh, no, this might not work out. And it worked out. (laughs) Well, it makes sense, too, like when the stakes feel low, when you're just like, I'm going to try this out. Then you're your most honest self. So I think that was like what I remembered feeling was, oh, they should hang out because they're just at the same place. Like they want the same thing. So it wasn't going to be like someone's looking for a relationship and the other person is not. And then you just like (laughs) met each other halfway, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Thank you, Jane. My pleasure. (laughs) My pleasure. Well, clearly you have a wonderful intuition when it comes to understanding other people as evidenced by that story. But additionally, uh, you mentioned before the recording that you are also a teacher now. You're teaching songwriting at the very university that you went to. I am. I am. I teach songwriting. It's a workshop for students who just want to learn what that is. And they're at completely, you know, like people are all different in terms of their background and experiences and familiarity with instruments or using vocals. It's been like kind of a matter of invention. It's a visual arts school. It's the Art Academy of Cincinnati. And finding ways to communicate, like you don't have to actually even play music to make a song. All you have to do is to understand enough about elements you want to bring together. And then you can do it with all these different digital formats. You can work with musicians and communicate with them. You can also learn all the instruments that you want in a song. It's been really, really strange. And I really enjoy it every day. But for some reason today, I sang the theme song for that commercial pizza on a bagel. Oh, Oh, bagel bites. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it came out of nowhere. I don't even really know why I brought it up, but um, things like that happen too. And I'm not sure like if I have no idea what the impact of bagel bites was. (laughs) I mean, they're college students. I'm sure they're like, yo, bagel bites, totally. (laughs) 
That is an interesting thing to think about, though, for sure, because like we've had plenty of weird one off experiences with professors back when we were in college that were like inexplicable, sometimes out of character, sometimes, you know, uh, within their character, but still inexplicable. And to peer behind that, like, for instance, uh, Evan, you remember when our in our songwriting class or no, it was our music history class at Drexel, our professor Myron Moss, uh, Julie departed Myron Moss. He jumped on the back of one of our other students in the class, like I, making an example out of him. And he like climbed up on him like a little monkey. And he was like wagging his tongue around and like really made a scene and then hopped off and sent him back to his seat and then continued with the class. And I don't even remember what the point was he was trying to make, but I'll never forget the fact that he yeah. jumped on that guy's back. And people might be re- reciting that bagel bite story about you <laughs> for years to come. <laughs> Those moments for me, they come out of like a feeling of possession. Like I just have to surrender. I just, I'm just handing myself over. For me, songwriting is not always a very cerebral experience, but having to like take it apart as a language is more than my brain has done in many a year. And Mm -hmm. that was something I wasn't expecting. I kind of thought I would just be like talking about music and here's what I do. And when I first heard their, like the first uh, recordings they made, I was just like, oh shit, this job is cool. Like I get to hear (laughs) these things just in my vocabulary in general. I've removed the words good and bad and replaced them with temporary or sustainable. Because I think, especially when you're starting something like a brand new process where you're putting so much out there, like you're being really vulnerable which I I feel like students feel anyway, but especially like in a totally different medium. If you can sort of depolarize your thinking about the quality of something, you set yourself free. To me, that's what music is. It's like freedom. So I want to give them that idea. Anything that's like music theory based, I think about it for like weeks. Like, is this actually going to help them or is this going to totally shut them down? Mm. But I really love it. I mean... Today, we listen to all these awesome songs in class. Uh, the Gravedigger song, like from David Bowie's first record, The Rain by Eddie Gale. We listen to some Bjork, and we're just taking things apart. Yeah, that Gravedigger song in particular is really interesting because so much of it is diegetic sound. He recorded Ooh. himself like walking, and uh, you can hear yeah. like, the crunching of his feet, and it's mostly a cappella, right? It's all a cappella, except for some bells. There's like mm-hmm. church bells ringing. He sneezes and says, excuse me. (laughs) (laughs) But that still like qualifies very much so as a song, even without the harmonic content. And that's like a very freeing perspective. Oh yeah. It's got like a traditional ballad. So, I mean, I know I do this to myself frequently as a songwriter. I have all these rules and expectations for what actually qualifies as a song. And that's the fundamentals of it is just to have like structure and melody. And then that's essentially it. And sometimes you don't even need melody. And sometimes you don't even need a traditional structure. There's so many different ways it can qualify. And I spent so long being the pedantic person that I am, like learning the rules and treating them like my own commandments for music. And that's a valuable thing, especially at the jump, before you create all that kind of hardened cement for yourself, you can still kind of swish it around a little bit. Yeah. And I think that, um, I feel so fortunate that I had the musical training I had and that I was born into a family where music was celebrated. And because I started performing when I was really young, it was like before I became shy. So I have a different Mm. association with performing music than I do like public speaking, which I never did. I'm more comfortable singing in front of people than speaking in front of people. And I wonder too, like if I hadn't had those early experiences, if that wouldn't have necessarily been something I could do in my early life. So working with people who are older, 
You know, you get that whole like, oh, I can't draw. I can't do math. I can't sing. Like that gets hammered into us when we're so little. Like we're too little to question it. And it's really unfair. It's like deeply unfair. I consider song an inheritance that we all receive. And so the models in which like there's these hierarchies and, oh, this is a good singer and this is not a good singer. Like that's bullshit. Everybody deserves to at least know like what their voice is. So when we shut kids down, when they're so young, how do they come back from that? That's sort of like my life's mission is to dismantle that as a myth. I think certain people make money off of it and that's why it continues. Especially in the American Idol era and all of that. Yeah, that's what that's founded on. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really great way to look at that and a really great mission that you're embarking on. Previous guest, uh, Natasha Roach, who was on, I don't think we touched on it in the episode because we were just having such a good time. But when we were recording the vocals to the songs that she sang on, she sang on two. Mm-hmm. You know, she was really nervous to do it. She wanted to. She's always wanted to sing. But when she was young, you know, she was told that she had a bad singing voice. So she never sang and she's always wanted to do it. And she fucking came into the session and just like nailed it. Yeah. And like has incredible pitch, has a great timbre and just like could do it. And, you know, she was nervous the whole time. And I was just like, you just killed this. Like, (laughs) that's crazy. You know, it's taken me all 33 years of my life to be able to sing as well as I do now. And, you know, I'm not perfect. And for her to be told she's not a good singer and then show up to the first recording session she's ever done and just knock it out of the park. It's really a shame that, you know, there is that kind of stigma when you're growing up. It's just like, ah, you're, you'll never be a singer. Yeah. That's, and, and who's making that call. And, and I think that's like something that think about some of the most memorable vocalists that we like Tom Waits. Or um, people who like probably got told that when they were young. Like that's not how you're supposed to sing. Just think about the example everyone always cites, but like Bob Dylan and someone who completely changed how popular music was written and consumed. And he is also someone who emboldened so many vocalists who otherwise wouldn't have thought that they were, you know, could qualify for it. Like Jimi Hendrix wouldn't have started singing if it wasn't for Bob Dylan and even Neil Diamond, even that late into the history of popular music. He was also influenced by Bob Dylan to move out of the shadows as a songwriter and become a lead vocalist for his own material. I think in the last hundred years, we're seeing just like different kinds of artistries that get celebrated. Those are the people I want to find, like shine a light on. I mean, Daniel Johnston too, as a songwriter. I mean, his songs are like so deeply affecting. Like I saw him play in Cincinnati in like maybe 2004 or so. And I've never seen a performance like that before or after. I mean, he gave like everything in him. Like he was the song he was singing. So yeah, it's like good to gather those models and and keep a lot of different people's way to music in mind. That's such a great story about Tosh. And like she deserves to be able to share that with the world on individual terms. Yeah, I'm really grateful that she came on the podcast and did it, you know? Bummed I missed that episode. (laughs) We'll do it all again next year. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to have everyone back for round two. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But Jane, you mentioned you started young. How old were you when you started performing? So this is a goofy story, as many of my stories are. My father taught at a private boys' high school. It was kindergarten through 12. And for whatever reason, they let girls into the kindergarten, but not any of the rest of the school. And the year I went, there were no other girls. I was the only girl in the whole school. So first of all, this like completely grew up without thinking 
girls and boys are different. I was four, so I was little enough to not really feel like I was any different than all the other students. But they had a um, Christmas pageant, and I got the role of Mary, and uh, <laughs> I sang away in a manger. Then I think that was one of those things like, oh, I know, I know how to do that. I know how to sing. So I wasn't afraid to try. Then I started piano when I was seven, and I played clarinet and violin, and then... I bought a guitar when I was 15, and that's when I started writing. And then I didn't start accordion until I was maybe in my late 20s. So. Oh, wow. Um, it's so funny. I always think wow, of you yeah. as an accordion player. But yeah, you are truly are a multi-instrumentalist. and Because you're also, as far as we know, like a, a master at that as well. So. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. I <laughs> do not consider myself that, but I will take it. <laughs> <laughs> I went to an accordion class one time. I'm forgetting the teacher's name. It will come to me. He's originally from Serbia. And so the Serbian style of accordion is every single note has like a little grace note with it. So if you look like at a, a line of music, you're doubling every single quarter note with this like little flip. And it's so complicated. And I went to this class with, it was three other accordionists and the teacher and I, and they just started like reading sheet music, which I'm not great at that either. <laughs> And I just sat there and held my accordion for an hour while they just played this crazy ass song. I mean, it was incredible. I don't know that I've ever like had a moment like that before, but it was cool and very humbling. And I was also very grateful to just like get to hear that. I mean, that I've never seen anything like it before. That does sound amazing. What was the next meeting like <laughs> the next time you I showed didn't go. up? I, I oh. chickened out after that. <laughs> I did it once. I stayed, but I'm not coming back. But I made a lot of field recordings of the musicians there. They were great. That is cool. Well, you're like a world music consumer yourself. You, you sang in a vocal choir or vocal group uh, while you were living at Big Mama's. Mm -hmm. uh, what was the, the region and the origin of all that music? Yeah. So um, in 2013, I joined a Bulgarian folk choir called Yasna Voices in um, New York. It's a style I've loved for years. I had no idea that I could ever really do it because I'm, as far as I know, I'm not of any Bulgarian lineage, but I auditioned and it worked out. So it sort of became my life for a while. And I was working at the Alan Lomax archive at the time. So I was just like finding all of this material, like all of these songs. It was just amazing to be kind of like doing both things at once. When I moved to Philadelphia, I joined the group Svitania, which is no longer, we disbanded basically during the pandemic, but a lot of people were moving and things were changing, but they, as a group, Svitania sang for over 20 years in Philadelphia and they sing, it's more Eastern European. So from like 12 different countries that we sang. If you've never heard Bulgarian folk music before, uh, particularly just acapella. Uh, it's definitely something that should happen. It's extraordinary. It's incredible. So um, now that I'm in Cincinnati, I'm sort of like looking to see if there's some connections to be made. And if there's not anything that sort of resembles what I've done in the past, I'm going to start an ensemble, which will be like a whole other thing. I don't have any experience teaching. They're really complex harmonies. Some of the songs we would do in Svitania I could only learn one part because if I tried to learn another one, I would unlearn the first one mm. and then oh, no. I would be lost. It's like a, a wild community, actually. It's pretty fun and pretty intense, but one of my favorite things that I've gotten to do. Even the, the snippets of the rehearsals that we heard back at Big Mama's were so like incredible. And you were saying the harmonies were so complex. It definitely yeah. stuck with us. 
And fortunately, you have a garden of, of fresh musicians sprouting up uh, in your classes right. that you could possibly pluck from to yeah. cultivate that there. So I think it would be so cool. Like uh, Yale has a Slavic choir. And so I'm sort of going to think like if I can build with a similar model in mind like that. And they go all over the place. They toured. I mean, I got to go to Cuba with Yasna Voices and sing there in 2018, which was like one of the most amazing experiences of my entire life. We performed with the National Choir of Cuba and we had a rehearsal where we were surrounded by the whole choir and they were singing through one of their pieces. Like we sang a song for them and then they sang a song for us. And I could not pick out any one voice. Like the way that they blended was, I've just, I've never heard anything like it. All of us were just in the center of this, like sobbing, hmm. like you couldn't not. It sounds almost like a musical trial. You're on trial surrounded by <laughs> these musical jurors and pleading your like case the end back of the and wall, forth. Like when they're in the courtroom and. Yes. Yeah. 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 Like, yeah. A near cartoonish surrounding of people. That's really cool. People in Cuba knew Bulgarian folk songs because when Bulgaria was communist, there was like a relationship with Cuba. Hmm. So it was cool to go there and then like people knew our songs, which doesn't always happen. That is interesting because you have so much, again, like world music experience and America is something that's very insulated when it comes to especially non-English music. It's it's almost impenetrable to, to get it popular here. And uh, I don't know specifically what language they speak in Bulgaria. Is it Bulgarian? It is. <laughs> okay, it yeah, is. They, they have their own. <laughs> But then like a, like a Cuban tradition, like they don't necessarily speak that language, but there's still that uh, exchange of music because there's more of an acceptance outside of America of like, it's just about the music and not necessarily about the lyrical content. I think something we see in a lot of other countries too is being bilingual or knowing more than two languages is a natural part of your life. And mm-hmm. um, there's a resistance and a reluctance here. It's always very confusing because... Uh, just the more, the more languages you can speak, like the more you get to do in the world, but it's just not prioritized. Yeah. America is an interesting cocktail when it comes to our, you know, not always xenophobia, but the contributing factors that, that do make us kind of more, I guess, chauvinistic in a way, more like national pride. Cause we're also a massive country, so we can travel just as far as somebody across the European union, but we're just going to see Americans the entire way mm-hmm. And then that also contributes to the fact that most people in in most areas of America speak English and there's no pressure for us to learn another language. Even if you're in Canada, for the most part, everybody speaks English or even in the French regions, there's every signs in English and French. But then of course there's like the xenophobic element where when it comes to Mexico, uh, Americans will show up in another country and we'll be like, speak English. Yeah. It's um, bonkers. Mm Mm-hmm. It really is. But we revel in our in our isolation for some reason. And it's a, it is a curiosity of American psychology. I like that uh, revel in our isolation. <laughs> Thanks. I keep I'll- writing down things <laughs> that I'm like, these could all be song, song lines. <laughs> Chris is uh, pretty good at words. I'll tell you what. <laughs> it's true. Just in speaking, I, I wish I was better at lyrics, but. Uh, <laughs> You're very good at lyrics, Chris. We went through this just last week. All you have to do is take your conversations you have. And make that a song. Don't try to make a song. Just talk your song out. Effortless. That's sage wisdom right there. Maybe I'm going through my own sort of uh, psychological barrier of being told I couldn't do something when I was young. And uh, I can break down my barriers through the the therapy of this episode. (laughs) No pressure. That's what we're here to do. That's what this whole podcast is. It's just us, (laughs) you know, doing therapy for ourselves. Now pop up. Is that a surf thing? Yeah, it was a I love you, man. Oh, okay. (laughs) 
She got pop up. Pop up when that wave comes. <laughs> Sorry. Well, we've talked a lot about current stuff, but uh, we haven't yet touched upon the details of what does tie this podcast together. You were a resident of Big Mamas. I was. Yeah. yeah. Obviously a notable one with your choir and your accordion and all the other instruments. But what brought you to Big Mama's Warehouse in the first place so you could you know, join that community? It was like a lucky destiny that brought me there. Actually listening to the podcast over the past few weeks and just like I haven't gotten to hear everybody, but like you just use the word therapy. There's something really restorative about this series, like getting to hear about this place that for me, it was just like one of the most special places that, that I've ever lived and gotten to meet the most special people. I think about it all the time. I talk about it all the time. <laughs> and so it's super cool. So thank you for this series. And um, I was looking for a place to live. I knew Craig from Reanimator because I'd worked there for a few years. Oh, cool. Yeah, for our yeah. listeners, that's a Philadelphia coffee roastery and coffee shop. So I was there and that's how we met. And then... I've been living in this house in West Philadelphia. It was like a haunted house. I won't tell the stories. Like it's like an hour to tell it start to finish. It's crazy. But oh, I recently man. told some friends about it. And at the end, I'll just give them a shout out. Meg, Tom, and Eliza. <laughs> After I told the story, Tom said, at some point during the time you were telling that story, I was positive that you were going to end with you were actually a ghost the whole time. And then just <laughs> like fly into the air. <laughs> It's a pretty crazy story, but I left that house and was sort of just like floating around, um, oh. staying with friends and <laughs> needed a place to stay and was looking very casually. But I um, went in to get a cup of coffee and I ran into Craig. And then like an hour later, that was my first time in the warehouse. And we knew each other, but we weren't like, you know, we hadn't caught up for a while. And I remember too, he... Uh, he said, what instrument are you working on right now? And I said, the bagpipes. And then he said, where do you work right now? I said, a graveyard. It was just like. <laughs> was like Wait, you worked at a graveyard? I worked at the, um, the graveyard on 5th and Arch Streets where Benjamin Franklin's buried. Oh, whoa. Yeah, I was a tour guide. Oh, right. I remember this now. Well, that's a cool space. That's like a cool Philadelphia place. Yeah, this is exciting for me. I just picked up a copy of his autobiography. I mean, obviously the graveyard portion isn't mentioned in there. He wasn't around to write about it, but True. I, I am curious about this. Go for it. Any questions? I'm oh, <laughs> what, was it, what was it like working there? Give us some of the, the best uh, graveyard facts that you would recite as a tour guide. Well, my favorite, there was a couple named John and Eleanor, and I can't think of their last name, but John was the grave digger for 50 years. And I would imagine Eleanor had a lot to do with taking care of that space too. This is, I think, I think it was during like the late 1700s or the early 1800s. There's um, about 5,000 people buried there. But at that time, what a family would do was it was expensive to buy a plot and it was expensive to have a stone made. They would dig like the first burial that took place in a family would be down like 15 feet and then everyone else would be stacked. Oh my God. What? So these graves had to be crazy deep. And then they made a vault system. And I can't remember if John and Eleanor were alive when the vault system came about. Actually, that's where the Caldwalleters or that family is buried. Oh, the Cadwalleters. Cadwallader, yeah. Cadwallader's uh, Algernon fame there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for those who don't know, yeah, they named their band after the mayor of Yardley, right? He was like, at one point he was the mayor of their hometown. 
But yeah, I guess his family were, were Philly residents and they must have gotten stacked. Yeah, <laughs> but their vault is like 40 feet deep. Wow. Okay. That's really planning ahead. <laughs> I know. It's crazy. But to think of somebody digging that grave. Yeah, especially straight down. I guess they must yeah. have uh, had a like ladder a- angled or it in right? or a ladder. Yeah, I'm sure they had a ladder for sure. That's a long ladder. <laughs> yeah, I loved working there. Um, and we did a lot of music there too. Joe James played, who's an incredible guitarist. Sam Sheppen, who writes ballads, like traditional ballads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we all did a show there once. Uh, during the eclipse, we had an event where people could come and we had all the glasses and watch the eclipse. And then um, I played a show for all like cosmic related songs. So Do You Realize by The Flaming Lips and I Wish I Was the Moon by Nico Case. Just like, it was a really cool place. I mean, it's, it's a cool spot. Yeah, absolutely. This is, you said it was uh, around like, yeah, obviously pre-Victorian area. Did they also have that technology implemented for people who were afraid of getting buried alive where they had the bell over the The grave and the string that went in? So there's holes in a lot of the vaults. And one idea is that's what it's there for is the bell. And they also just provided ventilation and they also allowed um, someone when they had to lift the vault to like put the two by four underneath and lift it up. But that is something that legend has it did happen, not in that part of the burial ground, but it's part of a church, uh, Christ Church, that's still an active church that was founded in uh, 1694, I believe. And the structure that's there now is from 1722. Oh my gosh. I can't believe I'm remembering any of this (laughs) because I haven't haven't, like given a tour of this in like two years. I might be a little fuzzy on my facts, but it's the burial ground at that church where they think somebody was buried alive. Wow. Yeah. They could look for those telltale claw marks on the inside of the coffin. Well, the sexton of the church heard somebody screaming one night and couldn't figure out where it was coming from. And later when they opened a vault for another burial, they realized that there was someone trying to get out. Oh my God, it's giving me chills. I'm getting freaked out right now. (laughs) There's also Neighborhood House, which is a theater that's part of this whole campus. I used to be like the person, if there was a play who waited till the end and locked up and made sure, you know, no one was in the building, which I would think about that sometime. Like I'm the person who has to find if there's someone in the building. <laughs> Sometimes things would get done at like midnight. So I wouldn't get to leave until one. And I'd have to do a full oh. walkthrough of this three, three story. <laughs> <laughs> so what I did is I sang in Bulgarian as loud as I could. And to just like make my presence known and just sort of keep myself more calm But then I also realized, like, if anyone was walking by, there is a building with no lights on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's just the the haunting tones of a Bulgarian tongue. uh, Yeah. Like (laughs) potentially ancient ghosts, like, walking the halls at night. Yeah. And it's right by, like, the church graveyard. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't, I never thought about that as a possibility, (laughs) like, scaring the hell out of somebody until I didn't work there anymore. (laughs) Did you ever uh, get to play at Jim Croce's grave? I never did, Mikey. I have to come back. I love Jim Croce. I also love Jim Croce. Uh, I know there's other songs are usually cited, but Operator was the big one growing up for me. I would have that song on all the time. Oh, it's such a good song. I just ran ran into his cousin like a few nights ago, my old neighbor. They moved to Florida, actually, and then just so happened to be in Delco. Wow, they knew you were coming. And I didn't get a chance to say it earlier. When like bands would clear and like the noise would stop, I got to say like you playing and singing 
like that coming through the walls of the warehouse was definitely some of my favorite shit to hear. Thank you, Mikey. <laughs> yeah. No, totally. I felt like once I got in to the warehouse and I was getting settled, there was one night, again, I was in the garage just like having my thoughts. And I think there was like a band in the studio, a band in the practice space. And then I think in your room, Mikey, someone was like, if it wasn't you or it was another band, like it was just like from everywhere. And it was like, now is time to make a record. Cause I had, I'd done a few EPs. I hadn't really done much to release them. Like one, I still haven't released from 2006. I had my little band camp page. I, you know, I was doing things and I was more focused on live performance and I hadn't really thought about recording, but that night I decided like, I'm doing it. I'm doing it now. And that was because of all of you. And so that's when I started working with Joe Michelini from American Trappist. who's awesome. And we made a record and then we made another one. And now (laughs) there's another one to make. Like, I wonder like if that would have happened if I hadn't moved in. Big Mama's was a place of nonstop creative turmoil in a way, because it was just this perpetual motion machine of everyone constantly creating at full volume. So you had no choice but to experience every creation as it was happening, as it was being developed. Yeah. And it was inspiring. I mean, that definitely kept us busy. Without Big Mamas, we never would have done the A Song a Week project that eventually turned into the band. And we wouldn't have had the personnel to do it where we invited different people every week to, to join us on these, like, you know, compositions and recordings. I've never been in another place like it. It's, it was very cool. A very special thing. Yeah. Yeah. There was like, when I first got there, I remember, you know, I'm not a control freak, but I definitely sometimes like to create a space and have like a tight rein on it. Mm -hmm. And I remember somebody had like dropped their bowl in the bathroom, like a glass bowl for weed. And it was just shattered and just everywhere on the floor. Mm. And I went in and saw it. And like, normally I would just like go sweep it up. You know, that would have been the thing I would do. And I said, no, just going to let it be. (laughs) Just going to like relinquish control. I'm going to surrender. And it was there for like two weeks. <laughs> so that was sort of my first trial by fire to kind of see like, can I really accept what this place is? Because if the answer is yes, I can, then like anything's possible. But it did demand surrender. Yeah. <laughs> you weren't the one that picked it up? I didn't do it. <laughs> did you break it, Mikey? No, I would never. I wouldn't do that. I don't think. Well, by accident. I would clean up a bowl if I broke it. Yeah, oh, he has sure. far too much respect for weed and any <laughs> related paraphernalia to, and to just Absolutely. let it sit there. <laughs> Be a spiritual task for him. <laughs> Everyone gets in there and they're like, all right, I'm here. I'm going to take control of this place and uh, I'm going to get it into, you know, tip top ship shape or whatever you want to say. <laughs> Bear got the water cooler. Yeah, which was sick. Yeah, that was really <laughs> sick. Yeah. And then you see the mold come through the walls and you're like, huh, how long do I put up with this before I leave? Still there. We did a walkthrough after we all moved out with the landlord and uh, yep, that mold is all still there. Took out the kitchen, took out the, the toilet, the bathroom, Yeah, broke down a bunch of walls, but the mold in your room, Mikey, that shit is still there. Yeah, going strong. Mold in my room, that shit is still there. Mm-hmm. Jane, your room had the wall has been torn down. Oh, the dressing room wall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was a good wall. Oh wait, did you take Greg's room? Is that where you lived? Kyle's room. Oh, okay, 
Yeah, there's only so much you can relinquish in terms of control, and uh, Greg's room is where you have to completely give it up because <laughs> that was like a bizarre winding closet of a space. Yeah, I stayed in that room for a few months when Craig was out of town. Mm. What's really interesting, too, is I, I have a really bad fear of heights, but I was like cool with the loft. I don't know how my brain tricked me to let me stay in there. It might have been one of those things where you're like, well, this is my life now. Right. I have to just like <laughs> shove this one down. <laughs> Which, you know, do you still have that fear of heights? I do, but I'm working on a I'm working on a show about it. Cool. Oh. Yeah. I'm not doing it for a while. It's like the most ambitious show I've ever planned to do. So I need to save a lot of money and make a big plan. What's the So what's, I've been telling myself three years from October is when I'll do it. It's a reasonable deadline. Yeah, I mean it's I'm actually running a theater, which I've never done, like a and I'm gonna like be suspended in air. I don't know how high I'm going, but I have a lot I have to figure. Like I need to take like an aerialist class or do something like that. For a while I tried rock climbing because. Yeah, you're tethered. Yeah. Yeah. And you have somebody at the bottom of the the carabiner set up holding you in place. That was still terrifying. Oh, of course. (laughs) I I actually, (laughs) our friend Oliver is an avid, I forget what the, like the free rock climbing is where it's, uh, you're not on the cable, but you're doing it on a much lower, but much steeper wall. And I went with him twice. And, you know, I'm fit enough that I could get to the top, but every time I got to the top, I would completely panic. I would like drop into a near full panic attack because I couldn't climb back down and I wasn't supposed to. I was supposed to just jump off the wall and I was like 15 feet or more in the air. And it's just, I didn't have your loft or your broken glass bowl moment where I could just let go. And I had to like very slowly climb back down and like slide my legs under the wall where I couldn't see because I was too terrified to just let go of it. Nightmare town. Yeah. Oliver didn't invite me back after that. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll stick to skateboarding. (laughs) I went to Arches National Park. This was... uh, Oh, in Utah. We love that place. Yeah. Yeah. I went with my friend Will, who's a smoke jumper. So he jumps out of planes into forest fires to put them out. He's doing that right now. He's in California. Okay. Wow. He'd been there before. He loves being outside. You know, he camps all the time. And he's actually afraid of heights. But he's like, uh, yeah, I'm afraid of heights, so I'm going to jump out of a plane into a fire. <laughs> we got all the way <laughs> to the top. It was like this three-mile like incline, but it wasn't very steep. And then we like turned the corner, and there's this area where you have to kind of walk around this rock, and it's two-way traffic. So... Some people are right next to the rock and then some people are not. And if you're not next to the rock, you're just on a drop off cliff. So when I see that this is what I'm going to have to do to see this arch, because otherwise you can't see it. I just started like sinking to the ground. I kind of like started walking like a crab until I had every part of my body touching the ground. (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) And then I just started sobbing. I had to put my sunglasses on. And Will was just like, well, I'm going to go see it. So like he just walks (laughs) away. (laughs) So that's what happens to me. If I were in that situation, that's what I would have probably done. Like I would have like needed a helicopter to like peel me off of whatever surface (laughs) I was touching. (laughs) Oh, but you didn't get to go see the arch. I didn't see the arch. Oh, no. But I'm proud of myself for not like talking myself into it because I was so scared. Mm. That experience sort of helped me trust myself like a little better and be like, all right, yeah, if I don't want to do something, I'm not going to do it. 
that is the other side of that that isn't quite as like celebrated as much. Like <laughs> it's not as cinematic. Yeah, like knowing your limits and and saying, <laughs> you know what, that's just not for me. Like listening to your instincts. Like it's all about triumph and overcoming and like pushing yourself to the next level. But sometimes you just don't want to climb up to look at a fancy rock, and that's okay. <laughs> There were other fancy rocks, so I got to see those. Doesn't sound like Will's really afraid of heights. (laughs) Based on all of the stories that you've told, where you're like, I am struck with fear. Will's like, I'm just going to go do it. It sounds like the trick is displacement. It's kind of like when you have like an injury, then you like, you pull your hair so you don't feel the pain oh, and like yeah. a wound or something. Like if you're jumping out of a plane for the heights, you're looking at a forest fire that you're flying towards. And that is just as scary, if not more so. Yeah. So, double scary. Double scary. Exactly. So it pushes it into like a, like an incomprehensible place. It's like a Cthulhu uh, <laughs> elder gods mythos or it's too much for the human brain to comprehend. So you, you have to just power through it or go mad in the process. Yeah. Or I mean, it's sort of like you summon the madness. Yes. Yeah. That's what it sounds like Will is doing. He's summoning yeah. the madness. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jane, have you ever, during your tenure at the warehouse, did you ever climb the ladder to the roof? No. Oh, I didn't even like hearing stories about it. Have you ever done that, Mikey? No, actually. And I'd never done it either. Yeah, I guess you're, you're the only one brave enough here, Evan. Well, that's the thing is I'm also afraid of heights. And that shit was fucking horrifying. <laughs> oh and y'all would do it stoned, right? Well, yeah, I would go up it and then I'd be like, oh my God, I'm up here. And then I would smoke weed with Kyle or some shit and like be like, how the fuck... Am I going to get down? Because it's, you know, you know how high the ceiling in the warehouse is. It's just a straight ladder straight up into the fucking ceiling. Like It it was about 40 feet, honestly. Probably similar to that that vaulted grave that you've got the experience that Gravedigger had going into the pit. Wow. It was horrifying. And I did it so many times. And... After I did it the first time, I was like, well, looks like I'll be fine. Somebody please hold the ladder. And that was like it. That's all it took. So maybe I'll be like Will and uh, jump out of planes into forest fires. (laughs) Wasn't there someone who stayed at the warehouse once? I don't know if they lived there, but I heard that they like created this little like sleeping bag pod. They threw, you know, something to like climb up to the ceiling, but like pulley their body up to the ceiling where they would then like tie it and then just sleep at the top of the ceiling. Like it was like someone on tour or something that like, that's how they stayed in places. This sounds insane. Is this real? (laughs) Oh, that was when uh, Buzz Aldrin stayed at the warehouse. You can only sleep in zero gravity. (laughs) That can't be real. I feel like someone told me that story, but I don't, I don't remember who it was, but I used to think about that story a lot and like feel terror on their behalf. This thing is like going to sleep like that's bad enough, but waking up like that would be (laughs) the scariest part. Uh, that sounds insane and I do not condone it. End of story. Okay. I mean, I guess if people survived doing it, then. Yeah. It was someone like, that's just how they slept. I don't know that they went all the way to the top, but they were definitely like hovering from a tall space. Oh, maybe that was when Nosferatu stayed at the warehouse. I'm just going to keep beating this joke into the ground. Yeah, keep it up. (laughs) If you're ever bored, watch Nosferatu with the sound turned down and try out different soundtracks with it. (laughs) It does not disappoint. I did No Country for Old Men, that film with the sound turned down, 
and just Beyonce. Whoa, yeah, that's a wow, very that different spirit. Sick. Yeah, every yeah. bit of violence would be pretty surprising at that point. Unless, of course, you're listening to Lemonade. <laughs> <laughs> it's a trip. It's definitely like a, a good thing to do. What was your music of choice for Nosferatu? Leroy Anderson. Oh, I'm who not wrote like that song. This was like a composer from like the 50s. It's very like Nosferatu like opens the coffin. It's you know, he did this song called the typewriter song. It's so annoying. It's just like a typewriter. But with a melody behind it. Oh, so the percussion is the typewriter, yeah. Yeah. Which I've heard in other things and it's like good, like nine to five, Dolly Parton. I love the way the typewriters are in there. Although that actually, the sound that you hear that you think is a typewriter is actually her, her, uh, fingernails, her nails. Mm. But, uh, Leroy Anderson, just like super kitschy over the top. I mean, super talented, really made interesting, complicated songs, but. I'll be sure to test that out. I'm, I'm all for a whimsical, <laughs> playful Nosferatu. That, that'll cut back on the fear a little bit. Maybe yeah. you, need, you need some of those compositions playing the next time you go up a rock wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe that's a trick. Well, there is uh, a number of studies around that where people can lift more weight if they're listening to like certain types of music, like aggressive uh. like music. And maybe you can scamper up the side of a building like a playful little vampire creature <laughs> if you have the appropriate soundtrack. If you listen to 007 hard enough. Oh, or that. Yeah, then you'll be doing uh, the parkour from the opening of <laughs> Casino Royale or whichever one that was. Yeah. <laughs> really listen hard. <laughs> Oh, wait, Mikey, it won't work. I know you only sang two notes, but I'm pretty sure that was the Mission Impossible theme that you just did. Okay, same thing. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't know the difference. James Bond. The Mission Impossible one's the one that's in 5-4, I think. Mm, 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 mm. Yeah, 5-4. That's a little compositional theory for your music students <laughs> if you want. You can pass that along. Well, speaking <laughs> of compositional theory, why don't we talk about this week's song? That's a good segue, Evan. Thank you. did a great you. job this time. <laughs> <laughs> Take it away, Chris. Well, this song was called, or is still called, Do American Dream. It was from our recordings for our album, Bad Year. So it was a long, long time ago, even before you had ever moved into the, the warehouse, Jane. And I wrote this song. It's a theme I've returned to a number of times about the push and pull of wanting to possibly give up a life of music for a more predictable and ordinary life. But in the narrative of this song, it's more so that no matter what, you'll always get pulled back into the life of music as opposed to a, a song that we did. Oh, actually on Natasha's week, as you, as you mentioned before, Evan, that song was called ordinary guy. That one was about giving up music and <laughs> returning to ordinary life because it was inevitable. So it's the, the warring, the two forces, but yeah, I guess let's, uh, let's give it a listen. I choose to be myself It's not so lucrative I'll pursue easy well Sell my soul and buy a Rolodex To keep my clients in the loop But what's the use? Every early morn I'm wondering Dominique's ever buried free. I pay the toll, no rock and roll, my morning commute it brings me down. 
some of the top-notch cheese ball stuff I was cooking up at the time, but I think that song is kind of cool. I think it was a good decision to not include it with the rest of uh, Bad Year. It wasn't quite so musical theater ready, but honestly, out of all of the guests, Jane, I'm very glad that you were the one to help us develop that song because you have an open and soothing spirit where I feel super sensitive <laughs> how goofy that song is. Thanks. I think it's a great song, and I, I think agree. it's also like... People who are in music for a minute or for a lifetime are like gonna understand that conflict. At the time, I was like, oh man, I don't know. But you know, it's aged <laughs> like a fine wine, I feel like, because I listen to it now and I'm like, damn, this is a good ass song. I totally agree with you. It definitely didn't make sense going on that record, but like, this is a great song, Chris. I Thanks. really like it. Well, maybe we'll uh, inject it into uh, the rotation of live songs again someday if uh, 
we're feeling like a like a playful Nosferatu ourselves where we can <laughs> put some goofy compositional things in there. But yeah, thank you guys. I appreciate it. You're both performers, you know. I feel like Jane was the right person for the job because Jane, you do a lot of, you know, not only just music, but kind of almost performance art kind of things. And like Chris, I feel like this song feels like musical theater. Yeah. Yeah. And for Mikey sure. is a big fan of Hamilton. <laughs> it all comes together. <laughs> there it goes. Did I drum on that? I think that's Greg. It's that either you Greg. or Greg. I think I did. It feels familiar. Then it's probably you. It's either you. It's a hundred percent either you or Greg. <laughs> well, then I won't say anything. <laughs> no, say it. We can just say it to you. We can also just text Greg and be like, do you remember recording drums on this? <laughs> I just wish I like some of the verses were a little more interesting mm -hmm. than just the straight beat, like no crash accents, no nothing. I feel like that was probably me and Chris being like, hey. Just keep it dumb, simple here. Mm -hmm. I feel like Chris is like, can we record this really quickly, please? And I was like, I got to go. Because there's definitely a song or two where he's like, can we squeeze this in? And I'm like, ah. <laughs> and I'm like, squeeze this in? A four-minute song? <laughs> <laughs> he's like, and then there's this next part. <laughs> oh, yeah, because I always have like, like some weird yeah. curveball, yeah. I think we recorded yeah. 17 songs for that record, you know? So we were probably just like, Mikey, what are you doing right this second? Can you do this? Yeah, we were never much for planning ahead. So that, that does sound like yeah. that's probably how that situation played out. <laughs> At least one of them. I remember one of them went like that. Yeah. I'm sure you were just like there and you recorded three songs and we were like, hey, Mikey, mm -hmm. can we just yeah, keep going? Yeah, one more. Yeah. I feel like a little caught up with your studio situation now, but where are you today? I listened to some of that, the ones that you talk about a little in other podcasts. Yeah, we're sort of spread out right now. Uh, we're both doing a lot of like mixing and et cetera from home, but our equipment is at the Second Street Studio, um, which belongs to our friend Kylie Kubichotti. Yeah, Second Street Music. Second Street Music, excuse me. And half of our equipment's like just in storage there, half of it's implemented in his studio. I have 20 guitars in my bedroom. Yeah, and I have... I think an additional six or seven more in my bedroom. And then I have three bases under my bed. There's so, a bass amp <laughs> behind Chris. There's a bass amp behind me. We got it it's oh, all yeah. over the place. See, to answer the question, uh, we're yeah, sort of disseminated throughout our lives. Yeah. But yeah, we're, we're looking to make some more permanent plans. Mm -hmm. As time goes on, we were trying to rush back into it, but then we were like, we were in the middle of the pandemic still. So let's try to be meticulous. Yeah. So we have time. I can't imagine what that would have been like. Perfect timing, really. Yeah, it was like coincided with the beginning of the pandemic, even though it wasn't necessarily caused by the pandemic. Let's just say zany details. Do you think we covered enough, Jane, like of your performances and stuff? Would you like to talk more about that? Well, actually, I do have questions. You briefly touched on it. You said you're running a theater now. Oh, I'm going to rent a theater for this show. Oh, oh, I see, I see. But I see. yeah. But you know, actually, I did have more questions about that show. Whenever I think about somebody suspending themselves on stage, I, of course, go back to uh, the live performances of Peter Pan, like the, the musical that was on television. Oh, yeah. I can't remember her name who, who portrayed Peter Pan. It's like slipping uh, my, my Mary. Mind. Yeah, Mary. Um, uh, but either way, they had her hanging from a wire. And I've <laughs> seen online so many like high school mishaps of different like <laughs> high school production was like who had a kid on the wire and then just get yanked <laughs> off of the stage or through the set they, they, they break through a window or something and then they just stand up to continue their performance because of course the show must go on 
So with that horrifying image in mind, what is your plan for having your own suspension? Like what, what, what are you going to do for that? I do feel like this is a kind of a long story. So just to, when I was two years old, I was in an accident, like this wacky accident where I fell down a hill. This is also why I'm afraid of heights. I think Mm. I fell down a hill into a pile of stones and I broke my femur and I went to the hospital and they couldn't put a cast on my leg because it was already too swollen. So instead what they did was they put me in traction. So like my head and my shoulders were on the hospital bed, but the rest of my body was suspended in the air with these like straps that had pulleys on them. Like a suspended stirrup kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. You'd often see it for cartoonish effect in like a sitcom or something or a cartoon. Like, yeah, yeah. Totally. So I was like that for 10 days and then I was in a body cast for three months. Oh my God. My arms were free. They weren't the cast. So I could just like walk around by dragging myself. With the entire bed with you? With the whole cast. Like once I was out of the hospital. Okay. Wow. My mom said like she'd look out the window and I would just be like dragging myself around the yard for an hour. Oh my God. Well, your arms must have gotten pretty buff from that experience, right? They must have been. Uh, <laughs> and then I got out of the cast and I had to learn how to crawl again and I had to learn how to walk again. And I walked with a limp when I was a kid. And then I grew out of that and um, kind of forgot that it happened to me. Yeah. It's one of those things I'd hear stories about it once in a while and I saw pictures of myself in the cast, but it wasn't anything I like thought about. And about five years ago, it just dawned on me, oh, that happened to me. And it happened to me when I was really little. And it's probably where my fear of heights comes from. It just started kind of opening more and more to sort of understanding myself. And I read about the myth of Dionysus. People talk about Dionysus, oh, the god of wine and revelry and partying. But the word Dionysus in the Greek actually means God who walks with a limp. But Mm. it's not referring to Dionysus. It's referring to Zeus who had to carry Dionysus sewn into his leg. Oh, right. Yeah. As a fetus. Yeah. To gestate in his leg. Yeah. So Zeus had a limp, but then Dionysus gets named God who walks with a limp. So there's like something about like generational grief that's taking place in that story. And then as time goes on and and it's a myth adopted by the Romans, they use Bacchus, which is God of wine. Mm -hmm. So like that aspect of the story gets lost by something that's, you know, more fun, uh, more marketable, you know, and, and something to like get people to celebrate. And when I heard that, I started thinking about my story. And then Dionysus is also the god of theater. So the, the idea of being cast in something, like I was in a cast, but if you're an actor, you're in the cast. The whole term break a leg as like good luck in theater And I just started thinking about um, what that story could represent in a relationship with the Dionysus story. And so I just kind of got this image of like being suspended in the same way that I was in the hospital. So not too high up, but trying to find like a sense of agency in that position. So once I got that image, I haven't been able to let it go. And I'm trying to grow this piece around it. And then use it as an opportunity to sort of challenge my fear of heights. So I may not go up too high because I also don't want it to be something that's about making the audience feel like they're about to be a witness to something that they maybe don't want to witness. We we don't want like a Spider-Man turn off the dark scenario. (laughs) 
<laughs> or you're just getting chucked into the crowd halfway through the show. <laughs> oh my gosh. I read about that show and just, I can't believe that happened. I can't believe like they kept letting it happen. Yeah, there was like three or four Spider-Men who got seriously injured. Yeah. And they just kept sending more... <laughs> More audience fodder just to get plummet. And then even one of the Green Goblins got hurt too, I think. That's crazy. Yeah, well, uh, I can't remember the director's name, but she made the Lion King musical. Julie Taymor, yeah. Yes, Julie Taymor. And Frida and... One of the greats, so they trusted her. And Yeah. When people say yes to you for too long, you start to uh, (laughs) say yes to yourself for the wrong reasons too. (laughs) Yeah, that's the show. Um, I actually, the theater I was talking about where I used to work, I wrote it for that space. Hmm. So cool. I've thought about, you know, if I'll do it in Cincinnati because I'm here, it'd be easier to some extent, but also it's an amazing space. And like the fact that that's what inspired me makes me feel like, ah, I'll come back and do a show in Philadelphia. I mean, obviously we'd welcome it and that would make it easier awesome. for our commute as well. <laughs> <laughs> we'll update the, uh, the links in, in the uh, bio for, or the uh, the description okay, cool. for the episode <laughs> in, in a few years from now. So yeah, audience, start your timers now for three years <laughs> to, to check back. <laughs> I'm such a slow mover. It takes me so long to get things done, but I like having a deadline. That's how I do everything now. I'll be like in 10 years, I'll get that done. Yeah, we'll endlessly tinker on things for sure. The record that we put out last year we recorded four years before that, and I must have remixed it probably eight to ten times. Oh, wow. That many? Jesus Christ. Well, because there were times where I'd start it over again and then just completely eliminate it and then go back to a previous mix. So to completion, probably four times all the way through. Wow. And uh, we didn't have a deadline. And also, we had a couple with that video game that was released for it, so that gave me too much time to kind of mess around with it. And it was... After all the time, maybe two weeks before we officially implemented the final audio into the game, I did one additional final mix and got it mastered again and sent it off. So a a deadline is vital otherwise. Otherwise you just wander. And like the Mm -hmm. wandering can be really good. Yeah. That can lead to really insightful things and new possibilities. But I know with myself, I just have like a faith in it if I know I have to show up and then I get stage fright. So like an hour before every show I've ever played for my entire life, I'm like, I'm leaving. I'm not going to tell anybody. Walk out (laughs) of this tour. I'm not coming back. I I do it for every single performance. That's so interesting because you've done so many performances. Now I know that's going to happen. So it's part of the process now. Yeah. Like I kind of start to tremble and then I'm like, no, forget it. Do you find there's a point in the actual performance where it shuts off and you're just cruising? Yeah. Then I get out in front of people. And this is where I think like this started when I was little because I wasn't scared the first time I performed in front of people. So it's almost like I'm that kid again and I'm just like doing what I want. singing my song. (laughs) I mean, it does change when I work with other people because if I'm by myself, I get to make decisions that Mm -hmm. I don't have to share with anybody on stage. I mean, I've gotten up on stage and not known what I was going to do when I got there and just figured it out. I like that process a lot though. It can be really terrifying, but once I do figure it out, I'm like, oh yeah, like I got this. It's (laughs) It's empowering. Yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. I think we've talked about this a few times. Uh, I know Evan isn't affected by the same anxiety, but I definitely feel it. And my guitar often feels like my shield when I'm on stage. Like I'm not holding something in my hands. Like the rare time that I've done just performance of vocal, it's the most terrifying thing for me. But even more so, I feel like a solo performance, even with a guitar, is Mm -hmm. more terrifying to me. Like having these two and our other band members with me on stage 
there's something about that sort of team element where I feel supported by them. And even though at the end of every performance, I'll like tear myself apart and be like, oh, I missed these three notes. And then everyone will be like, I didn't hear any of those. And also I missed these 300 notes. Yeah. <laughs> and also I just didn't play half this song because I forgot yeah. how it went, even though I've played it 200 times. Or Evan's favorite thing is when we're doing harmonized guitar parts together, he'll mess it up and he'll just like keep playing and he won't fix it. And he'll turn and look at me and just start smiling while he's, <laughs> <laughs> he knows it's driving me crazy. No, I usually won't continue doing the harmonies. I'll usually just start doing a bunch of really big bends. Right. Exactly. So nobody will know. <laughs> That's the thing is I don't really get stage fright and that kind of stuff because I can play it off like I meant to do that, which like mm -hmm. clearly I didn't. And I'm sure whatever dumb smile I have on my face is giving that away. But <laughs> it's, you know, I'm just like, all right, well, I fucked up. So let me just lean into it and make it into something else. And I'm sure at that moment, Chris is like, what the fuck is going on? And I'm just like, Wee! And I'm like, yeah, we're rocking. This is sick. I've come to accept it over the years. I mean, it's fun. You know, why do this, you know, if not because we enjoy it, if not to have fun. So it's like, you know, I'm not trying to get it perfect. I'm trying to have a good time. So yeah. I'm, I'm not worried about getting on stage and making a fool of myself. I don't know if I told that story about my English teacher sophomore year telling me to act like a monkey in front of the entire class. And like I hesitated and he was like, see, that's stage fright. And, you know, that's where I like understood that. That's where I was just like, oh, if you get up in front of people and you chicken out, you're going to look worse than if you go and make a fool in, in front of everyone because at least you're owning it. Mm -hmm. And like, that's the lesson that I learned. And so you're going to be like, Evan, act like a monkey. I'm going to go, ooh, 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 ooh. <laughs> like whatever. Well, you've grown into the role too with those hairy shoulders of yours. So it's, uh, oh, it's I it. had these hairy shoulders when I was 16, my guy. Don't oh. you worry. <laughs> when I first started doing theater, the first play I was in, I was 16 and I had a full beard. I just had to draw in my mustache. I've seen the photos. This, this is very true. <laughs> Yeah. Powerful mutton chops, yeah. It was a good time. But yeah, that's why I don't really experience stage fright because it's what I love to do. It's like the moment I look forward to is I'm just like, I am in front of a bunch of people and they have to deal with me now. <laughs> I'm not performing for them. I'm performing for myself. That's my catharsis. That's my like moment of release. So I'm just like, this is here. I'm doing this because of what I get out of it. And if you enjoy it, that's amazing. And I really appreciate that you like what I'm doing. But like, I'm here for me. I'm here to to feel good. And at that point, they already paid for their tickets, so. Yeah, you're here to deal with me. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine yourself on a beach. He's quoting a classic, uh, I would say, failed bit from one of our shows. See, that... I, uh, Chris remembers <laughs> the audience backing up and, like, being afraid by the of end this. Of, by the end of it, we were playing at the Middle East in Boston, and by the end of our set, the audience had backed away at least by 40 feet. <laughs> And there was this like I a gulf between you. us and them, but it was entertaining. It was some of Evan's ace improv. What I do you say. remember about that night, Mikey? Nothing. <laughs> Sick, dude. Here, I got the week's book out right here. I got our, our merch book of how much we made each night. So let me just. Oh, no, he's going to use raw right numbers now. to prove that his improv routine was a, a success. <laughs> Either a success or bad. Let's see. Here's one night we played in Boston on 11 12. Uh, mm, didn't do good in merch that night. I'll tell you what. <laughs> okay, no numbers from that what, one. Which night was this? Who who do we play with? We I'm were sorry. we were playing with Reggie. Reggie in the full effect on the tour that Evan's referencing. Uh, this night in Boston, we did really good in, in merch. Oh, <laughs> on uh, July nineteenth, did wonderful <laughs> in merch. 
I think there's something with. a little uncouth about revealing uh, how well we did at certain shows monetarily. I, I think that's. Uh, well, you I, can I, cut it out. You just bleep <laughs> it out. <laughs> there's like one show ever that we did well in merch. So this must have been a bigger show because I'm like, we never do this well in merch. <laughs> to Evan's spirit that he was saying, we've uh, been doing this for years despite being wildly unpopular. <laughs> <laughs> oh no every time we do it because we love it every time we played the middle east here in the era that we actually had like bigger tours we did pretty decent merch so couldn't have been that bad of a show unless it was the one in july that uh we did really bad in merch <laughs> <laughs> so if it's that one um sorry <laughs> do not imagine yourself on a beach no do it it was so awesome it was really funny to to his credit. Was it at the Middle East? It was at the Middle East downstairs with Reggie and the Full Effect. Oh, it was the July date that we did really well in merch, Chris. That was Oh, the really? One. So suck it. I stand well, I will not suck it, but I stand corrected. <laughs> no, nope, you're going to suck it. You're going to suck down a whole bowl of curry later. That's what you're going to do. Okay, fair enough. I'll, we didn't specify what the it was. I'll I'll take the curry. I'm going to slurp it down. <laughs> okay, well slurp either it way. Down like the slug you are. How do slugs even eat? Uh I'm not, I'm not sure, Evan. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, touring is fun. I would like to do a gig again one day. And Jane, I would like to see you perform again one day. Mm-hmm. Uh, this show sounds really great. Or come to Cincinnati and we'll put a show together. So in Cincinnati, I was going to mention this before, Jane. My friend Eric runs a studio called The Tone Shop out there. Mm-hmm. And Eric is a really great engineer. And there's a really awesome music scene that I am privy to and know a bunch of the members of. And I really love Cincinnati. I really love playing Cincinnati. Shout out to Eric Kronstein and The Tone Shop. Chris and I run our own studio, but The Tone Shop is somewhere I've always actually wanted to record and oh, sweet. doing a record Will with you... Eric would be wonderful as well. Yeah, you should come and we could record. I mean, maybe you'll wind a song with bagpipes and I'll actually know how to play. It's been like four years. I still cannot play the bagpipes. <laughs> Have you been learning? Just learn corn songs. Uh, no. Have you been learning other uh, instruments in the meantime? Not so much. Yeah, really just the bagpipes. Hmm. Can you still play like clarinet and violin and like all that stuff i had no idea you played all of it play i knew you played guitar jane but i didn't know you know that you were really just like diving into it all the last time i picked up a violin i could like sort of get a melody going but i mean i should be clear like i was never very advanced necessarily and bowed strings are it's very easy to lose that too like i had played violin when i was young i haven't played cello for a little while and neither of us can do either of those things now so i can like almost fake it on the cello almost but uh i have friends who are really talented at that instrument so i would much rather pay them to play it on my albums yeah i feel that way too i mean one of my favorite things to do and my favorite part of the recording process is paying people to come be artists on the record with me and hand them money Cause it's just, it's like a sacred thing. And also I want them to want to say yes next time. So it is amazing to be able to actually pay musicians for performing on your album and doing what they do. We talked a little bit about this in Andy Black's episode last week, how it's tough for musicians out there. Cause first Mm. off musicians don't really have money. So it's like, 
you know, when you get paid to do something, it's really nice. And yeah, the feeling of being important. able to pay people too, it's even nicer. Yeah. And especially at this stage that we're all reaching now as musicians, we can finally get to the point where we have an expertise and we can celebrate one another's expertise through a, a capitalistic exchange that kind of funds the whole thing to keep moving. Yeah. And it's kind of like in bartending, you know, the best thing is when you have a bunch of bartenders come in, like to get to take care of them because you know, they're going to be generous. And then you know that you'll then be able to be generous too. And, and there's something like this sort of silent contract about that. And I think in music, it works the same way. It's like be generous so that you get to be part of this community and contribute. I mean, the warehouse is a perfect example. Like it's going to give back to you so things can continue. Yeah, I think that's a good philosophical tie-in to all of that, to live your life like a bartender who's getting served by another bartender and just keep that exchange going. Oh yeah, I guess, you know, being in the service industry for so many years, I understand that life and I want to give all of the money I can to the people in the service industry because I know how much that shit sucks. I don't like to be around people who treat people in the service industry poorly and I like to tip them as well as I possibly can because, you know, they deserve it. That work is actually legitimately hard. Speaking of, Jane, it seems that you wear many hats in the line of work uh what are some of the other jobs you've had because you've done bartending you've done guided tours of a graveyard (laughs) you're a musician you're currently a school teacher is there anything i'm missing i have a few i was a fabricator for a company called elemental child and they're crystal crowns they're sick like check it out elemental child like the t-rex song i'm gonna google glorious crystal crowns um i was an orthopedic laboratory technician so i made leg braces and prosthetic limbs wow do you think that one came from uh the childhood experience as well well that's something too like i never made that connection and then i was like wait (laughs) (laughs) maybe i am interested in this from my own personal experience Early on, I was an erotic baker, so I baked erotic cakes in Seattle. Genitalia and et cetera. Yeah. Cool. I called them fornicakes. What? (laughs) (laughs) Wait, was this your your company? What is the... It was a company, what were they called? I think it was just called the Erotic Bakery. Hmm. I got that job my second day in Seattle. Right on. (laughs) So you're probably a skilled baker. I baked a lot. I made like 70 cakes in a day. Holy fuck, dude. And then we'd sell them. Like I'd do all the baking and I'd bake 70 cakes and then freeze them. And then through the week we would like design and decorate them and they were cool. Oh man. One week I was really broke and I stole an erotic cake and I, I lived off of it for like a week. (laughs) Because <laughs> it was like the week before I got paid. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I've got great news for you. If you ever come back to Philadelphia, there's a Philadelphia Erotic Cakes, Pennsylvania bakery. <laughs> so, uh... I think those are my highlight jobs. Oh, I was um I was a nanny for years and years, and uh, two of the families I worked for are the lead singer and bass player for the band The Walkmen. Oh, really? Oh, cool. So I was with, at the time, they had their first kids, so two babies that would go uh, take a nap at the same time, and they would just scream. But they would, like, scream in syncopation, so I would record them and call them Scream Team. (laughs) (laughs) It sounded so rad. (laughs) 
That was a cool job. Yeah, I like work. I really like love to work, actually. I love washing dishes. I love cooking. Like, I love chopping a million onions. I just, there's something satisfying about a start to finish. Oh, yeah. Quick aside. Do you have a good way to make it so your eyes don't burn when you're cutting tons of onions? Light a bunch of unscented candles. Because it burns the gas that's being released from the onion. If it's a scented candle with the onion smell, it it's confusing. That's a good hack. What my brother always did is he took a wooden spoon and he put it between his teeth so he was forced to breathe through his mouth and he wouldn't, Whoa. he would eventually start salivating. <laughs> uh, I've heard that if you have like a super sharp knife, it doesn't do it as much. Is that true or no? Oh, that is know. true for sure. I've also heard that. Yeah. But I have a super sharp knife, but then, you know, I'll have to cut 15 to 20 pounds of onions when we're making hot sauce sometimes. And you know, it adds up. It really you does. You got time to pull out the whetstones? I mean, you know, even with my fucking mega hella sharp knife that Oliver went to some random guy in New Jersey and had him, you know, make razor sharp, you know, cutting the paper and whatnot. Just no problems. Uh, you know, once you're knee deep in 20 pounds of onions, it's it, it, it catches up to you. Yeah, it's a lot. Have you ever used the chopper thing, like where you put it on a grid? I haven't. I have for a potato, though. They work for onions pretty well, too. Good hack. Thank you for telling us about it. Anyway, I forgot what I was interrupting you so rudely about. Oh, that you love working. You love start to finish. That's oh, what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. I think that's why I started performing less and recording more because I, I fell in love with that finished thing. Mm -hmm. And also working with Joe, who runs Berlin Studios, Joe Michelini. Mm-hmm. Having that because I work alone most of the time, but he's creating with me like that also is like such a great process. So I have someone helping me decide like this is done, which was harder for me in the past, which is also why I think it, it took me a long time to even decide to record. I'm glad you started doing it, though. Yeah, thanks. I, uh, I love it. It's so magical. Well, speaking of recordings in places where people can find your work, where would you want people to look if they want more Jane Carver? I am on Bandcamp as Jane Carver and all the streaming places. My songs live there too. On Instagram, I'm at Impossible Song. I'm not a very prolific poster, but I like to go there sometimes. Great handle. Thank you. I was so surprised I got it. Figured it would not be available. And that's about it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I have a website that exists that I don't like to look at, so I haven't. Um, okay. I haven't gotten to the place where I, I ask someone else to look at it. Okay. Well, if you ever update it and you want me to add it to the to the links, <laughs> I, I can go back in and switch it for you. For now, it will be omitted. All right. Oh, I, on Vimeo too. I have just a few performance videos on Vimeo. Oh, excellent. And just like search Jane Carver on Vimeo as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you have it, folks. Be sure to look for Jane. Just, just Google Jane Carver, Bandcamp, or whatever your platform of choice is. And you'll find what you're looking for. Do you want to do the sign-off, Nard? Hey, all right. That's not it. <laughs> uh, let's he, let Jane do the sign-off. I like it so when what the do guest I do? does it. You just make it up. You just say, yeah, you've been listening to... No, just this. make it up. <laughs> Evan loves to torture people with this. It's not a torture. Jane is a performance artist. That's true. You yeah. celebrate adversity. Go for it. Are you getting stage fright? I am, but um, I was thinking, what if I sang a little in Bulgarian and then uh, someone else says Yeah, let's something. do it. All right. You sing in uh, Bulgarian and then Mikey, you're going to do the sign off. Ah, yeah. <laughs> this is Brepe Trunko from Bulgaria. Brepe Trunko mori malaimo. Brepe Trunko malaimo me seyo dive mori obido. Se yo di be yo bidome, nigdi yoro mori ne naido, nigdi yoro ne na
Super Week, Super Weekly, Supercast, and that is Jane Carver slaying it. Thank you, you legend. Yeah, thank you for being here, Jane. This was a thank pleasure. You, it was so great catching up with you. Thank you for having me. It was awesome. 